Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first twig of 2024. This is the 264th version. We have the fearsome foursome today kicking off the year. We've got Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey, welcome to 2024. Woo! We've got Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. Happy Mother Up and You New Year! Jen Donahoe, Strategic Marketing Consultant at Beta Hat and Jade Inferno. And you've got me, Laura Taranto, Senior Director of Product at Big Fish Games. So how were all of our breaks? Did we all toast in the new year with champagne and canapes and fun times? I fell asleep at 1030. <laughs> Boomer. This is the first year in three years where we made it past New Year. So I was very Gen Z this New Year. And stayed awake. <laughs> the fact that you're claiming to be Gen Z <laughs> makes you a boomer. No, I was at a basketball tournament all weekend, dude, <laughs> for made hoops. Jacob's team is number 12th in the country in eighth graders. It was pretty amazing. However, Jacob is not playing very well after his injury. So he is not contributing as much as we had hoped. But we're going to Vegas this weekend <laughs> right after that to get some more run in after his injury. So we'll see what happens, but it's been fun. Travel ball is both fun and expensive. I did travel soccer growing up, but when you're in Texas, you don't get to go to cool places like Vegas. That's amazing. How do you keep the young ones away from the naughty stuff? Pretty easy. You don't have that much time to do anything really, mm. but all good. What else? How about you? What did you do, Phil? I was in Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina. It's a beautiful place. There's beautiful mountains here. We had a great time. Tim Sweeney was not around, unfortunately. He's known to buy some forests around here. I did see like a effigy of Apple burning somewhere. I didn't know if that was him. Probably was, but it was low key. <laughs> Let me understand this. You left your baby kitties all alone for New Year's? What is wrong with you? No, no. We have friends who have a cat as well. I get daily updates. It's adorable. Don't worry. I'll post pictures in Slack again, of course, but the three of them are too cute together. We miss him dearly. You abandoned your children. You're just not ready. You're not ready, Philip, for the responsibility. They're on a field trip. Traveling across the world. Field trip. They need exposure. <laughs> it's tough love. Laura, what, what about you? How was Seattle? Oh, Seattle. So the fireworks show is supposed to be amazing here. And then they did the warm up the night before. I saw a little bit of the light show. And then the day of, there's this humidity cloud that is invisible unless you set off fireworks and then it absorbs all the smoke. So the first go of fireworks were beautiful. And then there was a smoke plume around the Space Needle that just blocked a lot of the show. Interesting. It was, yeah, I feel like there's so much promise and then it kind of sometimes under delivers. <laughs> is a, how I would describe it. <laughs> all right, a couple updates kicking off the year. The last episode of 2023, we went through our top self-written categories and then assigned what we thought were the right games to them. We sent that out in the newsletter. So please go check out the newsletter, look at the questionnaire. If you haven't voted for your favorite games, go vote. And then there's also a question of what we should call them. We've come up with Golden Twig. I don't know, maybe we can do better. If you have ideas, submit them, please. And then in Q1, we have a couple of events. So Pocket Gamer Connects, which is in London, 22nd and 23rd. On the 22nd, there's going to be executive roundtables. Our newsletter also has the sign-up link if you're there and would like to attend. And then at the beginning of March 7th and 8th, the whole crew, all of us, will be flying to Istanbul for the Game Summit. And there will be also an Investor Summit. Check out Slack. We're going to be sending out more details. We would love to see you all there. I'm so excited for this. I have never been to Istanbul. I've been to Moscow. I've been to China. I've been everywhere except for this Turkey kind of area. Are we going to do something like extra fun, gang? Come on. We're all together. Actually, people don't know this, but we have never met in person. I've met Laura in person, but none of us. Well, I guess you guys met Jen, in person. we work together. <laughs> well, wait, I, all right, fine. I, I know you like to bury that under the I hatch. I do, I do. <laughs> After Dice with Ellen, but I mean, <laughs> it did happen. <laughs> I didn't work on Dice with Ellen, but yes. Well, apparently no one did if you ask them, the, but. That is true. Yeah, it, it still got made. <laughs> that is true. Is it an event that anyone can sign up and come to? I've actually been getting this question when I talk to people about this. 
the Istanbul Game Summit? In the past, it has been. It's huge. There's a thousand people. No, oh, no idea. I watched actually before I joined the podcast, Chris. I watched your presentation on YouTube. I was actually yeah. very impressed. I was actually really. It was impressed. genius. It yeah, was really right? good. It was genius. I was. How could you say no? Well, that's why I wanted to join because I saw you get up on stage and. It's funny to see you a little bit nervous, though. I was like, oh. Oh, I'm a terrible presenter. I'm absolutely no, terrible not. presenter. I, I'll admit it. No, it takes me like so much prep. It's ridiculous. So for any of you out there, I, it does not come naturally at all. You have no idea how much pain and agony it is. Like doing this is so much easier than getting up on stage. Very true. So I think you are going to do a presentation. I have to do one. If you want to tell me what I should talk about, please do. Because Mishka was like, go to market and brands. I was like, thank you for that very specific recommendation on what my 20, 30 minute presentation should be about. Cool. Okay. Just to give you a little bit of a boost, Eric, I couldn't tell you were nervous. I thought you had great stage presence. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Well, no. All right. Moving on. Let's go. (laughs) I like this. I like making you feel uncomfortable and giving you compliments. All right. So here we go. Quick hits. Microsoft pulls the plug on Windows Mixed Reality. About goddamn time. It was a st- stupid idea from the get-go. Still stupid, even when Apple does This it. is HoloLens, right? Yeah, this is the same thing as what Apple's trying to do with their $3,500 device. Yeah, I think ain't gonna happen. everyone's letting Apple do it. Nuzu maintains 2023 market value prediction at $184 billion. Nuzu's got a lot of prediction presentations coming up. Subscribe to those if you're interested. I think they're also looking at... 2024 being a little bit consistent with their previous numbers that they put out. Have they ever done anything, a recap on how accurate their prior predictions were? Does anyone ever do that? (laughs) We did. Well, they came out and said they're maintaining it. I think they readjusted 2023 in the middle of the year or 2022 because remember everyone thought 2023 was going to be amazing and then it kind of tanked. So I think they did. All I'm saying is I've never seen one of these analytic firms come out and give me two time series. One is their prediction and the other is the actuals. I would challenge any of these magnificent firms to put one of those out there. The problem is it's impossible because you're right, they revise it constantly. I would love to see that. The CBO tells me when they revise things, I'd love to see one of these agencies do the same. It's not that hard. I'm <laughs> sure they have an Excel f- flying around somewhere. I mean, all you have to know is that Nuzu has a hockey stick up for the next 10 years. You know, That's their forecast. Of course, that's not happening. So they're yeah. wrong. So next year is going to be down across the board, I think. Even for mobile? I thought mobile would be like relatively flat. Well, okay, flat, fine, fine. But if console is down, mobile is probably down five, depending on how much implementation they do on the uh, fingerprinting yeah. stuff. Somebody asked me this and I was like, the end of March into April when the EU DMA comes out for the Digital Markets Act for Europe, and then also the same timing is going to be when Privacy Manifest hits for Apple and Scan5 comes out. So the end of Q1 is going to be a moment in time for us to really pay attention and see what happens. It's going to be interesting. It could be as impactful as IDFA, right? Oh, yeah. In a way, because you're basically just completely pulling the rug from the industry right now because everyone's using fingerprinting to scale games. Correct. What was interesting, Apple put out an early list for the SDKs that you have to acknowledge So basically, again, the privacy manifest, when you submit your build, you have to say if you're using one of these SDKs. So the list that they have out right now, which is preliminary, it's not final. It's funny, it's every single Google SDK. So Firebase and all of the different ones. (laughs) But I I didn't see AppLovin on there yet. And so that was really interesting. I can only imagine the AppLovin, Apple conversations going on, like, don't put us on the list. The politics. All that stuff. Okay. So anyway. Let's revisit that. So PlayStation 5, they reached 50 million unit sales in November of 23. It was the best month in PlayStation history. PS5 outsold Xbox Series X and S three to one. Oh my God, in 2023, according to research firm estimates. Epic Game Store is going to host blockchain games rated adult only. So right before the break, Gods Unchained was rated adults only by the ESRB only because of blockchain inclusion. And so the Epic Store booted it because 
their terms and conditions said that if you were adults only, you can't be on the store. But Epic Store actually redid their rules to say, if you are given adults only because of blockchain, then you are okay. So they made an exception. So Gods Unchained likely is back on the store. So just to explain what's going on there. And then final one from Laura put this in here. Square Enix's New Year's letter from the president announces aggressive investment in AI to make content development more efficient and to also make publishing functions more sophisticated. They will also continue to focus on Web3 blockchain. So there's actually a really long letter that the president posted if you want to get into that. I mean, this is like a VC terminology bullshit. Let's get people interested in the stock. So blockchain and Web3 was the big soup du jour last year. And so he put that in his letter and now they're putting AI in the letter. Did you hear Google is expected to lay off 30,000 people because they believe that AI is going to make the ad units so much more efficient? Did you see that? It's, no. oh, it's, how many people work at Google? Like, how can they afford to let 30,000 people go? It's coming up. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, investments in M&A. Addressable raised $6 million for Web3 growth marketing. Keyword Studio acquired multiplayer group from Improbable for $97 million. So I guess this is like some kind of team at Improbable that they're just selling for cash, I guess, to keep funding their development. So this is not a good place to be, just to be clear, as far as I can tell. <laughs> they're selling off assets. So I don't know what's going on in Improbable. Barnyard Game raised $3.4 led by Menlo Ventures to make games for Fortnite. That's interesting trend that I think we'll be seeing all year. Private equity firms submitted first round offers for Jagex like late week. So Jagex has been around for like over a decade. When I, We looked at it when I was at Kabam. And so I think what happened was the Carlisle Group, which is a private equity firm, bought it for about $500 million or something like that back in 21. And they were pitching a valuation around a billion. But now they're, the valuation is downgraded to $800 million. So just to be clear, the Jagex is like this cash cow with their main game, which I'm totally blanking on. RuneScape. Thank you, RuneScape. And so it's just this juggernaut like cash cow with all these customers. So it's an interesting private equity thing, but growth has been a slight challenge for them in terms of building new things or expanding the market. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, like they've been trying to build a publishing arm for a while. That seems to have not really gone anywhere. I mean, it's just a classic company that has this old hit and they can't seem to grow out of it. Yeah. They're not willing to take the risks they need to take to, to build out new franchises. And so they're kind of stuck with the old one, but keep milking the cow until it stops. <laughs> they were one of those developers that got duped by the Transformers license, one of the worst licenses known to man for gaming anyway, but they tried to build a Transformers MMO, which oh. <laughs> I played it. It was horrific, horrific, horrific. It was so bad. Anyway, all right. Hey, by the way, not much going on on layoffs right now, except now she put the Google 30,000 on the table. But in gaming, I haven't heard much recently, but I could be wrong. But there's a big, big shakeup in Sega, which I don't know much about Sega. So we really need Joseph Kim here to give us the inside scoop. But basically, Jurgen is in and Gary Dale and Tim Heaton are out. So I'm not sure what's going on. I would love to hear just as a buy and buy. I don't think it had anything to do with their acquisition of the Rovio guys. But Rovio, I was looking at the data that Rovio is not doing too well since the acquisition. By the way, they're down like 15% year over year since the acquisition. But I don't think it has anything to do with that. So we'll see. All right, Phil? It has happened. It has finally happened. Monopoly Go has surpassed CoinMaster, maintaining the number one revenue spot in the United States for the week of December 17th to the 23rd. And it came in number two worldwide, just behind Royal Match. Holy shit. If you're getting sick of hearing about this game, you're going to puke in 2024 because this thing is just <laughs> getting started. It is certainly not over. It has surpassed CoinMaster. I mean, it looks like this could be the top grossing game for the next couple of years. Holy guacamole. That is incredible. And I don't think we've done enough deconstructions of it. I'm sure it's going to continue to get more and more attention. And it should. It should because this thing came out. I don't want to say it came out of nowhere. It was cooking for five to seven years, but <laughs> huge juggernaut, huge juggernaut. And if we continue to look at top seller charts in 2024, or at least for the holidays, Baldur's Gate had another great Christmas. It returned to the number one top seller chart on Steam. The finals, which we had been covering from Embark Studios out here in Stockholm, tumbled five spots to number 
10. It's also seen engagement start to chip away. And as of Jan 2nd, it had its lowest day of engagement so far with around 750,000 DAU on Steam. We also heard that Embark will not be making their content roadmaps public, saying that they don't want to commit to things that they can't deliver, which is not a good sign. You need to be able to deliver something, and they haven't had a content drop since the game has come out. Usually you put things in a warehouse, but they have not apparently done that. Uh, Two comments here, just off the cuff here. One is that this is not an indie studio. This is the fucking polar opposite of indie studio. It was super funded by Nexon, right, for over $100 million dollars, this guy is like an OG developer, Patrick Soderlund from EA, dude. He was the head of fucking studios at EA, right? He was in charge of DICE for years, decades, you know? This is not an indie studio, so stop that, okay? The production costs are huge. And this thing's dying on the vine within a week, within a few weeks, right? I mean, this is not doing well. I don't think it's that bad. I actually think they had a fairly successful launch. The problem is that they're all former DICE people, and as much as I love my DICE people, the struggle has always been maintaining retention over the long run. And the irony is they're making the same mistake they made with Battlefield, not having a fucking plan, not having a content plan. How many times can you make the same mistake? Am I off? Not at all. And you know what the worst part is that they have two other games in development. They're a new studio. Yeah. This is like the worst possible thing you can do is split your headcount of, you know, I think they're up to 400, 500 people. To split your headcount by three is, it's ridiculous. Like when they saw that there was any sort of spark here, they should have shifted all resources to the finals and got a real content roadmap together and did something. Like they're going to let this slip through their hands. 400 people, three games in development. Yeah, that's an indie. <laughs> yeah, thanks. For someone who really thought through that when they put that on the article. But anyway, the game is amazing, though. I mean, so let, it's let a great me game. be clear. The game is beautiful. <laughs> it's I mean, awesome. It's so well done. It's like they executed flawlessly against the gameplay, but the content roadmap seems to be lacking or any kind of cohesive plan. But we'll see. We'll see what they come up with, you know? Can you give like a little just summary of what type of game it is, the final, for those that have not played it? It's a shooter. <sighs> It is a shooter. Designers have gotten obsessed with these multi-team first-person shooters recently. So there was a game called Alpha Prime, which was also based in Stockholm. There was another one in Helsinki called 9 to 5, which had all been trying these kind of multi-team shooters. And so the idea of the finals is that you have, I think it's around four teams of three members each, and you're trying to extract a payload essentially to a given point. Now there's a couple different variations on the mode, but that's the main idea there. And there's a lot of destructibility in the environments. It's really well done. It's really well done. It's awesome. (laughs) I think I might've played 20 hours over the holidays, but no content roadmap to deliver, small progression. It's just, uh, it just ticks all the boxes of something that has a spark, but not enough gas to keep it juiced. But the indie studio with a top game is the game called Lethal Company. Have you seen Lethal Company in the top of the Steam charts? Keeps chugging. All the kids are talking about it. I have an intern over here at Jade Inferno Consulting, and he's always telling me what to <laughs> what to check into. And Lethal Company is at the top of the charts and hasn't moved in a few weeks. It is not gameplay like Among Us, but it's doing what Among Us kind of did. Oh yeah, I see. That's cool. Millionaires. And no, my kid nothing. loves this kind of thing. I'll have to ask him about it. Yeah. All right. Year in revenue chart. And for Steam, I think the one I would love to highlight is Sons of the Forest, which we haven't had a lot of coverage for. It came in number three in terms of revenue and number one in terms of units sold for the year on Steam. It is a survival crafting horror game. There's a lot of juice right now in this genre. And if you are Blizzard, you got to be smiling right now. It looks like they made the right bet of the genre that they want to go into. But congrats to the team that made Sons of Forest. It's early access right now. It should be out in 2024. But congratulations to this team for doing gangbusters in terms of revenue for being a small studio. All right. The other beef I have here this quickly with Steam, because I know how much you love Steam, Phil, is that there's some stat here that they have published the most games they've ever in their entire history, right? Like we're up to 12,000 or something like that in 2023. Is that right? Something like that. Anyway, I want to make the claim that's not a good thing, right? That's too many goddamn games, you know, like discoverability is impossible, the green light thing seemed like a great idea, but ultimately you're just flooding this thing with crap, right? There's no way of knowing what's good and what's bad, right? I'm all about choice, but not at this level. This level is impossible. You know, there's like multiple games per day. I mean, if you think that's bad, wait till I tell you about mobile. How many games are being published every single day on the app store? You must be shit in the bed. Yeah, that's not good either, right? Really? Discoverability is a problem. 
for the customer and the quality level is a problem. Let's save it for the segment on consoles because I think you're totally wrong about this. I don't even know where to start and how wrong this take is. Oh. All right. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity Game Framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones, frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. The big news over the weekend, I think, anyway, for the worldwide market for mobile was these new regulations from China. Now, I don't want to do this too exhaustively, and I wrote a lot of notes here because Maybe I'll just be more general about it. But the fact of the matter is that this thing was really well thought out. It was like 29 pages of restrictions that the Chinese government wants to apply on to all game developers. And so Martin Yang from Oppenheimer, I just want to give him a shout out. He put a great summary of kind of the proposals, right? And it's all set up onto different rules. And I think there was a total of like, I don't know, 30 rules or something like that for this. I can't remember. But anyway, so... I'm going to read a little bit of this just so you can understand like what they're going after. And what I think was a little bit scary was how detailed they were in terms of going after just the standard mechanics of free-to-play in general, right? Like I would say kind of dirty type things that the free-to-play does in order to maintain audiences, maintain spends and keeps them engaged, right? They're basically trying to just destroy free-to-play by putting these things together. All right. So... It was a 29-page document. The new rules are meant to cap revenue from whales. They want to shut off loopholes for new game releases and place overall health, heavier compliance and operational burden on video game publishers in China. And these rules are supposedly going to be implemented by sometime in 2024. Press, before you go on, so what was published was a draft. So that's an important thing just to start off understanding. Like this isn't law that went into effect. This is them putting out a draft. And even the draft had the major impact and that you'll talk about. So sorry, continue. Right. Okay. So rule 18. So this one was the one of the most severe, right? So basically it will forbid games from setting incentives for daily login, first in-game purchase and consecutive purchases. Game over, right? I mean, like, what do you do? Like, all these games are set up to do just that, right? That's the how they monetize. It's crazy, right? All in all, it requires online games to set user spending limits. User spending limits. Game over again, right? I mean, it's every single rule is like worse than the last, right? They want to implement alerts to notify users of irrational spending behavior, which is basically all of it, right? And apply spending limits again. The new rule basically puts caps on how much money whales can spend. And and obviously, we all know that all these games are whale-driven, right? And so, therefore, game over. Rule 27, gotcha no more. This rule dictates that publishers that offer direct purchases exchange options alongside any loot box-like rewards. So, this rule removes published ability to exploit player response for variable ratio and reinforcement. Anyway... They basically stop gotcha completely, right? Let's gotcha is eliminated from all games. 
Again, game over, right? Like gotchas everywhere in China in particular, right? I mean, this would hurt League of Legends, right? Yes. In theory, right? It would be over. Now, of course, this is mobile, right? This is No, it's all. It's everybody. It's all games? Oh, my God. I'm yeah. Sorry, I didn't even know that. I was just thinking from a mobile perspective. I'll chime in later. Yeah, okay. Public beta no more. I don't really understand this one in particular, but it says basically said that it's going to cap the number of participants for beta for 20,000. It looks like they were running unauthorized betas for games in China that I didn't even know that was like tens of millions of users, right? But anyway, they're trying to pull that back. And then the last thing is out of all these rules, but it's also like the amount of operational oversight that's going to be required to be compliant with these rules. So you have to obtain qualifications as an intermediate level technician and publishing professional and at least one in management and minimum of three on the publishing team in order to monitor these policies. So they're going to have to require like annual reports about their compliance and operations and all this fucking bullshit, right? And basically, this is going to basically destroy the small, right? Because to be comply with this stuff, you're going to have a whole team of people for each game, you know? I mean, it, this is crazy, crazy talk. This is really well thought out. This is not just like throwing something at the fucking wall, right? This is not like some kind of senator, these morons that don't know anything and say, hey, gotcha's bad because gotcha looks like gambling. No, this is like really kind of well thought out, understanding the mechanics of these games and how they make money and how they get people addicted to spending for no reason and going after them. And so this sent the stock market to the shitter, dude, in China, right? I mean, like, Billaby and Tencent and Netties have already been down, but they were down like 10 to 20%. Now they've recovered a little bit since then because they're backing off a little bit. But nonetheless, like this hurts them in, the, in a fundamental way. All right. So I want to be clear. I don't really know a lot about the China market because I just think it's not really that interesting from a Western publisher perspective. Generally, I don't really spend a lot of time in it, but I, you know, I get a lot of data points from a lot of different people about China all the time. And so this is exactly what I've been talking about on the podcast for a while is like they want to get the fuck out of China, right? They want to diversify their revenue outside of China because of this, exactly because of this. And this is the same point I'm making with India. One of the many things is arbitrary decisions around policies around free to play and gaming. You don't know what's going to happen. These policies were implemented. It would basically destroy most of the games. So I think if these actually the way it's written, you know, monetization would decline precipitously like overnight almost. Now, they would try to find workarounds around these type of rules, but nonetheless, if they were caught, the punishment would be severe. The government's not fucking around with this stuff, clearly, right? It is possible that they start to pull back on some of these rules and make them less egregious, right? You know, China removed the Fen Shuing guy who was the PR guy that put this thing out. He got fired, basically. And then some state broadcaster said that the authorities have heard the concerns and opinions raised by all parties and that they will study them carefully and revise and improve them, right? But the gauntlet, I think, has already been put down to some degree. I think this is what they're going to do, right? So, and then kind of my predictions on this, based upon these type of policies, smaller publishers are going to get completely gobbled up. There's no way they can survive on themselves. Again, regulations help the big almost always, right? Because regulations require operational leverage to manage, right? And they're going to need that to comply with these new laws. Overseas expansion. So here's the good news, potentially silver lining. Overseas expansion is going to become an absolute 100% priority, right? They have to acquire assets outside of China in order to maintain growth and keep themselves in business, right? But the US market has been pretty much shut off by regulators. So it's going to be you know, buying companies in Europe, buying companies in the Middle East, maybe, or I don't know where else they would go. Brazil, ah, who knows, right? And this is why that Mishka, and he's not here to defend himself, but the prediction that they're going to sell off Supercell is so ridiculous. It's so absurd on its surface that this is exactly why they would never do that because they need these assets. And Opco made some dumb comments, sorry, that you know, they're going to have to go to advertising and premium, right, to make up the difference. <laughs> Come on, let's get real, okay? Advertising, there's no value of advertising in China, as far as I understand it anyway. This is why I'm concerned about focusing on countries like these, like Brazil or India or Africa. Like all this talk about that is that these rules come out of nowhere and can have real big implications to the nature of the business, you know? Buyer beware, you know, if you're going to make a big strategic move to India, you know, and then all of a sudden they're going to come out with some rule in which you can't monetize your goddamn game. So let's, you know, be careful out there. But anyway, I, I think it's crazy and it, kind of out of left field, you know, and then they put out press releases about their 
they're approving more games now. But who gives a fuck, right? If you can't monetize your games, like there's no po- who gives a shit if you put out more games if you're not going to do the core monetization of it, right? So anyway, all right, I'm done. I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm going to add a little context for those that have not worked or wanted to make games for the Chinese market before. So China has an administration called the China's National Press and Publication Administration that approves games by granting a license. A friend of mine was working with a Chinese developer to make a game for the Chinese market, and they never got their license approved. So that ended up sending them in a little bit in a spiral. And what ends up happening is sometimes, and it's happened in 2018, and then again in 2021, sometimes they say no more licenses. They put a pause on licenses, or they'll say, you know, we're going to stop it for the X number of months, we'll return it in October, and sometimes that happens, and sometimes that doesn't, so you end up in limbo. So agree, Chris, you have to be aware of this if you're going to be looking at that market. Without the license, you cannot publish a game in the Chinese market. If you already had a game approved, great, you have the license, but now I think, and I've seen this a little bit with studios this kind of pivoting, you have your license with, I think there had to have been some indication that developers knew there would be regulations coming because even before this announcement, there was a pivot towards developers in China making games for Western markets. And you can kind of see it in the wave of games that were released. So way back when, I want to say the unofficial reputation of Chinese studios long time ago, they were were very good at fast following. And I want to say it moved to then you saw games kind of coming out of the studios making more kind of like the incrementers, like they were making kind of bigger changes. And now I would actually cite there's some great studios out there that have made awesome games. So one example would be Gossip Harbor that Jen loves like that. It is not completely original, but they came in and they've climbed to one of the top positions in the grid merge category. And then in addition, you know, we know Tencent's there, NetEase is there. And then what we'll talk about later is Century Games out of Beijing. I think they've actually have a headquarters now in Singapore. A lot of the games companies that used to be solely out of China are now opening other locations in places like Singapore. Century Games has made Frozen City and White Survival, as well as a new merge game, which we're not going to cover today. Lilith Games, AFK Arena, MiHoYo, there's there's a lot of great talent out there. Took a little peek just to figure out, like, yeah, it almost is like they had an expert in playbook come in and kind of weigh in on the different types of features, because even the naming was a little bit, I was surprised at how accurate the naming was. Laura, your point is specifically is that what you think is that these Chinese developers will now shift their focus on building games for the West and they won't build games for China? There's already a shift that there are studios that are now focusing on Western markets. Maybe they'll stay in China, maybe not. It depends. There's a couple things with the regulations I don't know. So like big companies that have huge games in the Western market, so the opposite. So the Western developers that wanted to bring their games to China, you need a Chinese partner. 100% you need a Chinese partner. I don't know if that rule still applies if you're already a Chinese developer. I imagine not, but I have no idea how they're going to do that. So uh, so basically all Chinese developers are going to become Fun Plus and Mio Ho, right? <laughs> and build games for the West. Yeah. And it's tough because they are showing that they, in some cases, they can do it better than a lot of Western studios can, and they can do it faster. I remember back in the day, I remember, you know, we'd be, you'd see like a clone come out when you'd release like a new match three game, a new puzzle and people like, oh, it's not going to be as good, blah, blah, blah. Now they're actually, they're pretty good. They are pretty good. Well, I don't know. I'm speculating now, but like China is sophisticated enough to know that's what they're going to be doing. And so they're going to basically restrict that as well, right? Like you have to have a certain level of publishing in China before you could bring stuff to other countries. It's going to be the Wild West for a while. Maybe, but there's also code development opportunities. So Tencent operates and they've got like these divisions or these studios and each of those studios partners with there's like a studio that partners with Supercell. There's a studio that partners with Riot. There's a studio that partners with EA, you know, for, you know, Apex and and all the other stuff. And so I think what they're going to do, if I had to go down Laura's path is these companies are going to set up these co-development studios and say, hey, Western companies, we can help you with these different types of functions, engineering and, and making it happen and really start to put out these different games. Remember, we were looking at Ubisoft and was it Ubisoft or Gameloft has a ton of partnerships 
fuck partnerships. They sold themselves to the devil to some degree. They took the money and they got rid of their biggest franchise. Oh, they just got rid of their licenses. Okay, that was a nut, wasn't Codev. Okay. Yeah, it was a guarantee. Hundreds of millions of dollars. They got guarantees for assassins and something else. And, you know, they just. Well, then they'll, anyway. maybe they'll do that. Maybe like the China companies will be like, hey, license your IP to us and we'll put a game out and we'll westernize it. Help us westernize it because I, I still firmly believe, especially on mobile, that Eastern games and Western games play very differently. Players are very open to different types of monetization and game styles. And so I do think that you need Western help for Eastern developers to make a successful game work in tier one markets. So at one point I was looking at, could I take a puzzle game to China? And one of the strategies I came up with was, yes, the skeleton of the game would be the same, but it would need to be developed in a way where the live ops could be completely separated, managed in a completely different way, different content pipeline, different pop-ups. So it was almost like this base game, same, and then you'd have to branch it out and have two different games that were managed by two different teams. That was how I was thinking about it. And yeah, I think the reverse would be true. But at some point, your idea is that, yeah, you would need kind of a Western specialist. At some point, it, they're not going to need that anymore. So Century Games released a merge game. I think that is for learning and getting into a casual market so that they can get better and expand beyond games that would typically work for outside of a mid-core audience. So they're now they're looking at puzzle. So I, initially, yes. In the future, probably not, unless they put regulations in. Let's see. So the only other thing I'll add is I was just taking a quick look at to see if we could look at the number, the percent revenue that comes from games that are in China and the West. I mean, I was looking at AFK, 17% of revenues from China, that would be potentially at risk. Honor of Kings is mostly revenue from China, has earned $7 billion in its lifetime. I mean, there's a lot of money, a lot of money at the table. The forest through the trees here, right? We're talking about more than 50% of the mobile market is in China, right? Like worldwide. So any impact that it has on that affects the entire market for mobile, right? And that becomes even more of a less investable space. It was already down last year and likely flat to down this year. And now we're talking about like a huge sea change of impact on the biggest market in the planet, right? And so none of this matters, right? This is all like a rounding error compared to the impact if a $60 billion business gets impacted by 10 to 15%, game over, man. It's bad, really bad. And so what I don't understand is how can Nico go out there and say that the market in China is growing this year? And I need to understand what they're thinking because they should know what's going on with these type of regulations. And the market, according to App Annie anyway, is the market's down like 20%. Yeah, I think you have to be really careful when you look at data AI for anything having to do with China. So number one is obviously on Android, there is no Google Play Store in China because Google Play is not in China. And the market on Android is so incredibly fragmented that everything I know, and listen, we love our partners, but their ability to measure China is just way off. That's why a Nico is probably a better indicator of the aggregate mobile market versus trying to do a data AI cut of it. That may be. But the fact of the matter is that Nico didn't miss this right? Because that was, maybe. it was not part of their assumptions. Yeah, maybe they right, didn't for know. Next year. Well, no, of course, but they should. They're the ones that should know, I would right? Imagine. If anybody. Yeah, no, I would imagine yeah. because it, at the end of our year, you know, New Year in China is in February, right? So for them, that this wasn't that big of a deal. But for us, because it was end of the year, it felt like they were stinking it out. But, you know, we should find someone at Nico and call them and be like, okay, to Phil's earlier point about revisions, you know, is this a 20%, 40% hit to the mobile? By the way, not just mobile. So let me talk a little bit about Riot. So everyone knows I was at Riot. I was on League of Legends. I think everyone also knows that at Riot, most of the revenue comes from China and Korea for League of Legends. And Tencent publishes League of Legends in China. So Riot does not publish it. Tencent publishes it. League of Legends in China, as for TFT, which is called Fight for the Golden Spatula on mobile, they employ gotcha and loot boxes and typical Chinese monetization like crazy. It is not allowed in the Western markets. Like you don't see a lot of, or any gotchas in the Western markets on League, but in Tencent, it is all the traditional stuff. So what is going to happen with League of Legends and a PC free to play game? So this is why when you're asking, is it everyone? This It's everyone because free to play PC games run out of PC bongs, get hit by this too. 
This is going to have a huge impact on Riot itself because most of the revenue comes from this market on PC. So poor Riot is, oh my God, this regulation in China is going to kick our ass. You're going to see numbers on League just absolutely plummet. That like they're, you know, Riot's probably thank God for Valorant, which is a tier one success for them because of the shooter market. But it just goes to show you that like the splash damage for this is huge. So I also wanted to mention on NetEase, so NetEase and Tencent have been buying and gobbling up AAA studios around the world. NetEase over the past year has probably either funded or purchased between eight and 10 studios, the Pixel Castle people, you know, Greg Street Studio down in Austin coming out. So Crest, to your point, they must have known that these types of regulations were coming or being discussed because what you're seeing are the big studios going and gobbling up all of these other Western studios to really let them do their thing too. They're also taking an old school EA approach with the city states, which is to let them go forth and do their own thing. So I also wonder if NetEase is now happy that they got out of the Blizzard business that this is coming. They don't have to worry about, you know, all of these different things coming. But on, on the reverse, I would also predict that, you know, to what we were saying earlier, Western companies are just going to absolutely cancel any China plans. And, you know, the only thing that might make a little bit of sense is premium PC. I mean, I think, you know, Crest was joking earlier, console is just non-existent in China. But it's just not a model that works. Everything at the PC bongs is free to play. I don't know. I need a magic eight ball like with Chinese characters on it to figure out what the hell's going to happen in China. Like this is, well, I guess what we can say is let's do a bet on how much the China industry is going to decline in 2023. Four. Sorry, we're in a new year. Look at the government said that games are the opium of the people. What else do you need? <laughs> they, they made a pretty strong declaration. I think the other thing that's pretty sad to see is that corruption is also way down in this government. And it's usually corruption that lets you get these regulations bent in a way that's favorable to game developers. And when corruption is down and you can't influence the regulators, you're in deep shit when it comes to things like this. The main problem I still think is that Chinese growth is starting to decline. You know, you're down to like maybe four or five percent a year. We're certainly not hitting 10% GDP growth any year. There's a real danger that China falls into this middle income trap. And if that happens, it's going to be a worse and worse place to invest. It already looks like a worse and worse place to invest. And the Chinese leaders just don't seem as interested in economic growth as they have been in the past. They've constantly talked about stability over progress being one of the goals. It's just sad. It's just sad for the world because I think Chinese game development is really picking up again. They're not just doing clones, to your point, Laura. They're making real original games and they seem to be onto something, you know, not just for the Asian market, but for the West too. And it's just, it's sad. It's sad yeah, that they're going to kill the golden goose. If they go after this, like, look, one of the big positive trends, and I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later, is that PC, like uh, Steam, has been doing extremely well in China. And even though it's completely illegal, by the way, it's getting around the regulators. So if they go after that as well, that will, you know, kneecap the Steam industry as, you know, the PC gaming industry as well. So... Yeah, I mean, this is huge implications, like huge. And so I want to be clear on this with people. I think people would misunderstand what I'm saying sometimes. The fundamental problem with investors is they want to see growth at all costs, right? And I know people don't like that idea for some reason, like that seems evil or something. But when you have an industry that's not growing or growing slowly or declining in this case, like that's not the, what they're going to invest in. And so that goes all the way down to the venture capitalists of the world, the private equity guys, and then also the investors that I'm dealing with, right? And so these type of huge changes to the industry are bad, really bad, not just for China, but for everybody, right? Because investment's going to get pulled away, you know? And if there's no investment, then there's going to be layoffs, just like what we saw in 2023, and people are not going to invest as much money. They're going to double down on what they got, right? This does all have an impact. It's all an ecosystem that you need to understand and understand why things are happening the way they are, right? So anyway, that's what's scary about this. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. 
What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Speaking of scary, there were insomniac leaks that just ended the holidays. This was truly terrifying. A group of ransomware hackers stole over a terabyte of information from Insomniac. They held it ransom. I think it was just around a million dollars they were asking. Sony did not give in. They did not give any money to them. There was a oodle of information released, and we learned a ton about Wolverine, but we won't dive into game-specific details. I think a lot of the strategy and business stuff that came out of these leaks were particularly interesting. Some highlights. Sony is worried about the Activision threat. They were worried about using in-game content to differentiate Call of Duty on the Xbox platform, which is ironic considering that's exactly what Sony had been doing for the last 10 years, is using exclusive content bundles on PlayStation to differentiate Call of Duty. It looks like they're scared to get a little bit of their own medicine, but there was no indication that they thought that Microsoft was going to take Call of Duty exclusive, so that seems to be consistent with a lot of what we heard in the trial. We got budget and revenues for major insomniac titles. We know that Wolverine cost over 300 million. We know that Spider-Man 2 was 390 million and we know that Spider-Man 3 has a 385 million dollar budget. So a lot of these single player adventure games have 300 million dollar budgets. Holy shit. And we also know that Ratchet and Clank did not sell that much. It looks like it sold around $73 million worth of uh, revenue, but cost $81 million to make. So that's a franchise that's kind of gone off a cliff. It looks like Insomniac is going to be the Marvel studio for a while. But I think one of like the main takeaways I got was a chart that showed the monthly active number of PlayStation accounts, and they split it between PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, and PlayStation 5. Now, the scary part is what Eric has been talking about, I think, for the last couple of weeks on the podcast, which is that console is shrinking, or at least it's certainly not growing. So from January 2021, there were 113 million PSN accounts, active PSN accounts per month. And then if we fast forward to January 2023, there were 111 PSN accounts. So we're looking at a small decline of PSN accounts over a two-year period. It's clear that console is certainly not growing, and it's also seems to be the case that when you think about a lot of these single player games, you're looking at $300 million per swing, which is really expensive. This is really scary stuff if you're a console manufacturer. I don't think anyone wants to be in the console business. We've been talking about Microsoft for the past year. What is the whole point of the cloud strategy in Xbox Game Pass? No one wants their total addressable market to be tied to $400 boxes that launch every three to five years. That's a scary business to be in. It's a scary business to be in the $300 million single player business. No, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I'm not going to let you go on that, right? <laughs> when 
they're getting average revenue per customer at thousands of dollars. Like that's like the place you want to be, right? Versus people that spend nothing, you know? So I agree that the market has not been growing for years, right? A decade. I've been saying this for, I don't know how long on the stupid podcast, but that doesn't mean that it's not amazing market to people because people have been spending more per user. So if you do revenue per the hundred million people that play or have PSN accounts, that's gone up over time, clearly, right? So, all right, moving on, go. What is the strategy for growth? What is the thing that's going to make you grow? And we know they've had a live service strategy, but let's put that aside for a second here. We've got three options, right? You can acquire, you can retain, or you can monetize. It looks like it's going to be very hard to just sell more boxes, but that's been your strategy, Eric. That's been your thesis is that you need to expand the demo. I don't see how you're going to expand the demo into something that Nintendo seems to have a hold on. Women and I'd say people above the age of 30 or above the age of 40. I just don't see how Sony's going to go out there and win over this audience with a $400 box. Free-to-play has killed any opportunity of that. And to the degree Nintendo has won that demo, they can't keep any of these people engaged. We look at the lifetime sales of Switch units and we compare that to the DAU that Switch is getting. It's abysmal. It's abysmal. Very few people are actively playing the Nintendo Switch. So I would argue, I think that Sony has two paths forward. One is robust early access, which we've been talking about, which to me has been Steam's huge success. Remember that Steam has been growing over this period while Sony has not been growing. Like when was the last time we heard about a game like Geometry Wars exploding on console? That was an original hit on console, and we've seen very few of those things. I can tell you Sony has practically non-existent early access program. What games are original on console these days? There's very few games that are coming out and finding their life on console. And I would say the other one is ads. Now, I'm not talking about these in-game ad bullshit, but there's a lot of valuable real estate on this dashboard. I'd love to see some of that auctioned off or sold. It seems to me like that would be another great way to make some easy cash. People are trying to find consumers. There needs to be real estate to do that. And with the downfall of IDFA, particularly on mobile, there still has been no way beyond brand marketing to get people to buy games on console. I'd love to see Sony or Microsoft open up some of that real estate for sale. I can't disagree with what you're saying, but I think I've been saying this very consistently for years now is that like this market has basically been saturated for over a decade, right? Maybe two decades at 100 million well, to 200 million, if you include Xbox and, and Nintendo, right? It's just basically Western 200 million people have been playing and Japan a little bit, right? So the other option for them to grow is to continue to monetize the converted. Because again, this is the market that people want, the 18 to 44-year-old males that spend a shit ton of money that have no qualms about spending $400 on a device and thousands of dollars on the content that they love, right? And so, again, you're selling to the converted. So, but I think... There is limits here, right, in terms of how much you can monetize. We don't really know exactly what those limits may be, but there are limits based upon the nature of the content as well. So first of all, you're going to get some backlash from console players if you continue to be more aggressive on monetization. Having said that, <laughs> FIFA, Madden, NBA, 2K, and Call of Duty all have continued to monetize better and better with the same install base to some degree of players. And then the notion of the competitive nature of some of the games, like shooters, for instance, it's really hard to build pay-to-win mechanics in a game that's competitive. People don't want that. And there's going to be a huge backlash there as well. And then the other big category of games are action-adventure games like, like Assassin's Creed and Last of Us, etc. And that's really hard to monetize, right? Because it's a one-and-done thing. You play the game and you're done. There's no live services. There's no long-term retention. There's no reason to continue to buy cosmetics. And so those are really hard to monetize. So anyway, it leads you to believe that there's a new crop of games, something like Fortnite, obviously, is a good example, that may actually improve monetization for the user base. Are you moving off of the demo? Are you moving off of expanding the demo? Like, I thought this was your big mantra. No, 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 like, no. We're, we're... <laughs> I think expanding the demo is a possibility, but no one's going after that. They're just trying to monetize the audience as best as possible. So is it realistic to assume that you can build content for that audience? So... My, my, I, sorry, I'm sorry, let me step back. My whole point is that building services like Xbox Cloud and other things that expand the reach of the service is one thing, right? But it doesn't matter if the content's not there. Like expanding the reach for Call of Duty does not mean that you're going to double the Call of Duty install base, you know, of, of players, right? Because it's available on cloud or something, you know, because you can play it on your mobile device or something. Like that. It feels like Sony and Microsoft have conceded I'll call it the casual audience, your audience expansion idea. It feels like they've conceded that to Switch. And 
I want to go back. You said something about there's no DAU on Switch. How do you know that? That Phil? was my question. Anecdotally, <laughs> I go to a store and it's so funny. Whenever I'm in the video game aisle, I see these moms looking lost and I walk up to them and I'm like, you look a little lost. Do you need some help? And she points to her eight-year-old and her five-year-old and she's like, they want a video game system. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you walked up to the right person. Let me tell you. And I like, I point to this and this. And, and she's standing in front of the Switch section. Like they know because they see those games. So, okay, now let me shut up and let you answer. How do you know that people aren't playing on the Switch? What the hell? So to be clear, my claim would be that if we were to compare, let's say, you know, monthly active users on these consoles, on the numerator and on the denominator, we would put lifetime unit sales of the console. I'm sure that Switch would end up in a distant third. There are just very few people actively engaged on Switch. Do I have any hard data? I think we've seen some anecdotal reports that very few people are engaged on Switch. They buy the console and then when one or two pieces of Nintendo first party software comes out, they scoop it up, they play it for a little bit and then they're done. Are you confused with the Oculus headset? or the MedQuest? No. <laughs> Oculus would be a distant fourth out of that thing. Right? They'd be like on the floor, right? I think I agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think the active install base on PlayStation is really freaking high, right? Compared to the install base versus Switch. Until, you know, a big game comes out like Animal Crossing and then it goes through the moon and then it falls off again. I'll concede. I'll, I think I agree with you. But that's, again, my argument is that you don't want that market, right? That's a casual market that you can't rely upon to continue to buy games. And that's why I think Steam is great, too, in the sense that, like, the active install base of the Steam users, these nerds that have PC rigs that can play this shit, right? Like, that's the audience you want. I think free-to-play really killed Eric's argument about expanding the demo. It died with Guitar Hero. It died with Rock Band. It's not coming back again. Phil, I agree with you. What I'm saying is they got to make some effort to try to expand the demo, but maybe that ship has sailed, right? But this is what scares me about the console market in general. You know, it's like, you can't expand the demo anymore with free-to-play, with mobile, with, yeah, unless you really try to focus double down on content, but we'll see. Anyway. Crazy idea for expanding the demo on Xbox and PlayStation is to offer an old school controller with a D-pad and four buttons and then market games like that. There are so many people that I talk to that were like, listen, I would love to play with my kid, but I am intimidated by that controller. Because they all these people grew up playing, you know, NES, original NES with the D-pad and the four buttons. Go and offer a retro controller and then put out retro games in Marketplace. So this is what I did back on, you know, with the Xbox 360 is we put all the Hasbro games up on Xbox Live Arcade or whatever it was called at the time. And we, we did a pretty decent business. Now, listen, it was Mice Nuts, Crest, in your calculation of that, but that was where we were actually offering casual-oriented businesses where kids and families could play together. Anyway, that's my crazy idea. I'll move off of it. And then I'll talk about ads because Crest, I want to make Crest go crazy. To your point, Eric, about Hogwarts Legacy, I don't think we know enough about who ends up playing Hogwarts Legacy. It sold gangbusters in terms of units, but who was playing it? So I played it over break. (laughs) It's so much better than I initially gave it credit for. But are these people who are first-time console buyers? Are they people that were playing on their brother's or husband's console? You know, I'm assuming it's a female demo, but I would love to see more information about who exactly was this audience that was going out and buying this in Gangbusters. Because it wasn't on Switch, if I remember correctly. This is a high-end game. Who are these people? The Switch version came. I don't think it's something you want to play on the Switch, to be honest. (laughs) I think. Potter is 50-50 gender split, though, but it's, it's a fair question. But if I had to guess, it expanded the demo definitely into some folks that wouldn't normally have played. But a lot of core gamers play that game. I mean, people I've taught, I mean, again, focus group of a few. Anyway, so Phil mentioned ads. So I just want to talk a little bit about the state of ads on console. It does feel like 2024, maybe early into 2025 is when we're going to start to see more ads on console. On PC and mobile, let me just segue for a second and say that Roblox is making big headway into in-game ads with both video and static. So many people may have seen kind of in December, the Aquaman movie. If you're walking around in Roblox, you walk up and you see the Aquaman movie kind of playing. Now sounds a little bit funky and all of that. So platforms are really investigating you know, ads. And you might say, well, Ro- Jen, Roblox is free to play and so you know, that's a little bit of a different story. It's not premium, but they're starting to pave the way for this to be 
a, a story that people can take to their executives and say, look, Roblox is doing these things. So on console, here's kind of the state of what's going on. There's a, a few major players in the space, Anzu, Bidstack, Frameplay, Player One, W-O-N, Player One. And they're doing actually, which is really interesting. And this is Dave Madden from Old EA. I know Press loves this entire conversation. So Player One is free to play rewarded video. So Brawlhalla, they're doing rewarded video on console, which is really kind of interesting. But in, in any event, Sony and Microsoft, they're actively testing with premium games to figure this out. It's incredibly complicated on the detail side. You have attribution, you have privacy, you have industry standards, what counts as an impression, how long does something need to be on a screen? All of this nitty gritty stuff is insanely complicated and like the monetization is complicated, the cuts on the revenue are, is complicated. But in any event, if folks can figure out and start really testing this, which we're starting to see come about in 2024, we're gonna start to see players you know, be presented with ads in some of their favorite premium games. And we're going to see if what's the organ rejection on this. Are players going to throw up everywhere? Are they going to be like, well, if it's, you know, a sports game, it's like, oh, of course they're sporting billboards. It's a racing game. Of course there are billboards that I race by. I don't necessarily love ads, but, you know, I think people are checking this out. Cress, did I? I got one word for you. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> Seriously, keep the ads out of my goddamn console for fuck's sake. Seriously, enough of that. That's what free to play and all this bullshit is about, right? You want ads, put them on mobile. Sorry, I'm joking because I know this shit's coming and it's going to make me sick to my stomach a little bit. But yeah, we've been this through down this fucking road before. Microsoft bought massive. Everyone was trying to put ads in games and it didn't fucking work because they revolted and it didn't make sense. There was ads in Battlefield, Coca-Cola ads in Battlefield. There was Best Buy banners and fucking Need for Speed, dude. It was like, it was a disaster of epic proportions. Anybody that was around at that time will tell you that the only one, the only ad units that made sense were in fucking Madden and FIFA on billboards that would have been there anyway, right? You've started throwing ads on fucking the, the homepage of Microsoft or Sony. Fuck that. Fuck you, right? Seriously, fuck <laughs> you. Stop it. Right? Just, just to clarify, I don't mean in-game ads. Like, those are useless. Those are useless waste of time. Those are useless brand stuff. I mean stuff that can have, like, real attribution on the homepage. I mean, like, search ads. When I'm going into the play PSN store, the Microsoft store, like, that's yeah, the stuff exist, that's valuable. That exists today, though, doesn't it? That exists yeah. already. I think they can absolutely ramp that up. Remember, like, things are moving digital. Like, the consoles are increasingly controlling distribution for content on the platforms they should monetize that more and more so anyway i talked to a lot of people at sony and microsoft about this stuff right you know these consulting fuckwads right and <laughs> they are just like regurgitating this bullshit right about how wonderful this will be how much you'll reach your audience and it's just like one bullshit thing after another and at the end of the day it is going to disrupt the gaming experience for people that are already the converted. They played $400 and $70 for a piece of content. They don't want sh your shitty fucking ads in their face. That's not what the experience is about. This is a premium experience. And get the fuck out of here, you know, type thing, right? Now, again, I'm half joking because I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're right. It's going to happen at the end of this year, early next year. We're going to see it. And you have to live with it. But I, I can object as a boomer this idea 100%. Like, stay away from console, please. Yeah. You, sh you advertising <laughs> schmucks, okay? That's what I'm saying. All you guys, all the companies, Anzu, Bidstack, Frameplay, stay the fuck away from console. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, one more point I wanted to make, because I, I have some friends that are at Sony and have live service experience. And so, you know, Cress, you've talked a lot about the history of live service at Sony was we don't believe in it. Then we bought Bungie and now we think Bungie is going to fix everyone's problems. They're going to, we're going to do last of us online. We're going to do online for 12 projects, right? No one read Goldilocks and the three bears, which is they went from nothing. They went to everything. Their eyes were too big for their stomach. And so now it sounds like maybe we're going to end up someplace in the middle, which is where we need to be, which is we're going to focus live service on a couple of key projects. We're gonna bring in some people directly on those projects. We're not gonna ask some other studio to help some random studio and we're gonna focus in. And so to the folks that I know on some of these, we heard you and we're glad that you're working on live service against some of the key 
projects and franchises wish you luck. We really want, I mean, I think, Chris, we want to see live service for some of these franchises, don't we? I mean, we think that is a successful strategy and we hope it pays out. And I think, you know, those folks are like, hey, we're, we hear you guys, we hear you guys, we're trying, but it's like turning a battleship on a dime. It's going to be difficult to do this. This probably deserves a longer conversation. And I know I've been talking on both sides of my mouth on this particular issue, but when they acquired Bungie, right? But I want to make a public service announcement to anybody at Sony who's listening. Leave Bungie the fuck alone, okay? Bungie doesn't need to report to anybody at Sony. You guys don't know what the fuck you're doing on live services at Sony. Full stop. Like, any of you executives don't know anything about live services. Having said that, Bungie needs to get their shit together and get games out on time and keep the quality levels up and keep players engaged, right? So they need some management at the highest levels to manage that. So... At the end of the day, they overshot with these 12 games. They should have focused on three to four games with Bungie being kind of like the lead developer with a few other teams. And then let the other teams focus on what they do best and building great single player experiences. And at the end of the day, just leave Bungie alone. Bungie's going to get destroyed in this scenario. I already see the writing on the wall. We're already hearing people within Bungie reporting to people within Sony that makes no sense. Like, it's going to be a fucking disaster of epic proportions if this continues. So anyway, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it more deeply in, at a later date. But they're just not capable of building you know, live services at Sony. So don't. Find studios that can do it, you know? Like Bungie, like the guys supposedly in Toronto or wherever they are. All right. So next week, I'm so excited to talk about Whiteout Survival. Yes. So everyone, give it a shot. <laughs> play it a little bit. We're going to do a whole business summary. By the way, it's crushing it. Top 13 revenue worldwide game. Holy shit. Like, I didn't know anything about this game. Crass, you and Laura mentioned it in our award show. And so I was like, what the hell is this game? I'm not really a 4X strategy game player, but... Wow, super impressed. I'm level 10. I'm about to upgrade to level 11, my furnace, Laura. Are you that far? Did I get far enough in the game? So now that we have another week, I'm going to get even further, but I'm at the same place as you. It's super pinchy now, though. I've hit a wall. I'm like, oof, I need to pay. <laughs> need to pay. Okay, Whiteout Survival, everyone. See you next week. All right, see you next week, guys. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.